Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Hello again. It's good to be back from book leave. And uh, the right have put on a show for me. <laughs> this week on the podcast, the National Conservatism Conference, which people have conveniently been abbreviating to NATSI, gives us a glimpse of a Tory party in opposition, but will Britain buy what they're selling? Meanwhile, Brexit DMP screen betrayal at one of their biggest cheerleaders, Kemi Badenoch, after she climbs down on the retained EU law bill. Will her disgraceful bias towards reality hurt her leadership prospects? And in the spoiler-packed extra bit for Patreon backers, in this week's succession, American democracy is in the hands of the Roy family. What could possibly go wrong? Let's meet the panel. First up, commentator Alex Andreu. Hello, Alex. Hello, Dorian. So nice to have you back. Thank you very much. Nice to be back. Uh, Turkey's election is heading for a second round at the end of this month. Um, Erdogan is being blamed for 44% inflation. Yikes. And a disorganised response to the earthquake in February. Um, He's one of those guys that's been around forever and seemed like he might... Uh, arrange things so that he was indeed around forever. Yeah, Just, could this be the end? Like, what's the what's the opposition looking like in the second round? So it's unlikely, unfortunately. Despite what the polls were showing, mm. despite the economic collapse in Turkey, despite the reaction to the earthquake, the areas that were most affected by the earthquake actually voted for Erdogan um, by more than sixty percent. It's it's just it's like extraordinary. It, it is just extraordinary. So um, Turkish elections are like the French presidential election. So uh, unless someone gets above the fifty percent, there is then a second round mm. runoff between the top two contenders. So Erdogan ended up the first round with forty one and a half percent, and his. Um, uh, challenger Kemal Kilic Taroglu, say that when you're drunk. I can't um, say it when I'm sober. <laughs> uh, he he was around 45 percent. Um, although there are still loads of overseas votes being counted, um, and and so Erdogan goes into the second round, which is on the 20th of May, really the clear favourite. Um, Turkey's united opposition has said. There have they have found loads of irregularities in thousands of ballot boxes. They've lodged complaints, etc. But they have uh, conceded that they don't think that affected the results significantly to huh. mean okay. that. So I think they're doing the responsible thing and trying to uh, avoid a situation that means civil unrest leading into the the second round. Um, The Election Observer, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, is highlighting loads of flaws in the run-up to the election. I think that's what's more significant. So Erdogan and the ruling parties basically enjoyed a a glorious soft soaping across the media and uh, uh, news channels, which are mostly owned by Erdogan and Erdogan's people. So it's it's, it's Um, quite succession-y then. Yeah. And and, uh, uh, the, the areas where the earthquake took place, apparently there's been loads of stuff that has basically not disenfranchised, but not done enough for people who are now without a home because of the earthquake to be able to vote. Um, and so all of those things are having an effect. But sadly, it looks as if Erdogan is, is the, the favorite going in. A lot will depend on when the third, the third person's votes mm. will go to. Um, and he's a hard ethno-nationalist. But weirdly, he's also a very committed secularist. And so they won't go automatically to Erdogan, who is very religious uh, and and getting more so as he gets older and his approach to government. They might go to to the opponent. We'll see. Rachel Wiermuth is the deputy political editor of The New Statesman. Hi, Rachel. Hello. Nigel Farage said on Newsnight that Brexit has failed, literally those words. It was obviously delightful um, for us. (laughs) But I mean... Is this what he obviously did not say Brexit was a terrible idea? I'm sorry. Is this what he was always going to say because he had no power over the the execution? Like, is this almost a, is in a sense a sort of a non-story because Farage could never be seen to say, "Oh yeah, it's been a great success, but I wasn't involved." It's intriguing, isn't it? I think um, I think because it's Nigel Farage, you could never rule out just a little bit of attention seeking. Um, <laughs> it worked. <laughs> And and there's certainly um, that's certainly something he's been doing a little bit more recently. You know, he's kind of flirting with the idea of potentially um, making yet another return to politics. Um, but I think the timing of such a big admission, because coming from him, you know, one of the main architects of 
of Brexit as it, the timing of this comes after the local elections when the Conservative Party is in massive crisis. So you would suggest that this has been said for some kind of political advantage. You know, he's obviously very connected to reform. I think he's an honorary president, I think is, is his title with reform. Um, they got about six councillors at the local elections. You know, they kind of, despite polling, you know, I think it's about, it was about 6% or something going up to the local elections, they, they didn't really break through. So I, I think this is something in relation to political positioning of some kind. So perhaps, you know, he can claim that if Brexit had been done properly, then it wouldn't, you know, it would be a, a huge success, which helps reform to set out its agenda of cutting taxes, basically, mm. and kind of trying to get that onto the agenda um, in the months ahead. You could always guess, couldn't you, on the day after the referendum that we would be hearing real Brexit has never been tried. That was yeah. the destiny. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's distancing reform from Brexit and from the, you know, potentially the high level of taxes that we're seeing at the minute. Matt Green is a political satirist and comedian who's just announced dates for his debut tour, That Guy. Hello, Matt. Hello, how are you doing? I'm fine. Um, Liz Truss, remember her? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was the other one at the coronation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is on a trip to Taiwan this week, despite having no brief. She told the Taiwanese delegation that invited her that there is no meaningful deterrence without hard power. Um, There's a lot more hawkish on China than Sunak has been. What do you think she's doing <laughs> i mean we're all have periods of drift in our careers yeah um, it feels to me like in her short tenure as prime minister she killed a queen and an economy and now she's going for like the triple threat of starting a war that's the one <laughs> thing she didn't have time to do she was only there for a few weeks you know she did do some pretty big stuff but she didn't actually get that involved in foreign policy so it feels like that's what she's after now that she she's got that final thing that she hasn't quite pressed that button i i have a certain admiration uh, for, for her sort of response to uh, massive humiliation and career destruction. Yeah. Because I, I would be, I would feel quite down and I would retreat probably from yeah, the public but you're eye not thick. for a bit. But, but she's got a lot of gusto. Yeah, every time I look at Liz Truss, I think there is someone who needs a bit more imposter syndrome. <laughs> well, the, she has the opposite. Yeah, whatever that syndrome. is, she just has like, she looks at her, so she's got the opposite of like body dysmorphia. She's kind of like, she's got brilliance dysmorphia. Every time she looks at herself in the mirror, she's like, I am brilliant. I don't know what all this stuff is about. I'm great at this. It's very much the, it's the Yates line, isn't it? About the, uh, yeah. the best lack all conviction while the worst uh, are Liz Truss. I yeah. <laughs> Before we get started, a quick word from Alex. Next week, we're back in the flesh at the Leicester Square Theatre. On Wednesday, May 24th, join me, Roz, Arthur and Marie doing her first live show. Tickets are on sale now and selling fast. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com to book your spot. Patreon backers get a discount. Check your inbox. Right, more Yates now. Uh, what <laughs> rough beast it's our come at last slouches towards the Natural History Museum to be born. It's the National Conservatism Conference with an absolute rogues gallery of Tory hardliners and thought leaders such as Douglas Murray, David Starkey, Munley Phillips and good old Matt Goodwin sharing their ideas on the heteronormative family and indulging in some Enoch Powell cosplay. The Conservative Democracy Organisation Conference over the weekend was just the Bring Back Bojo fan club but is this one bigger and stranger than Tory party politics? Our own Seth Tavo actually went along, God help him, and he's telling Andrew Harrison about it. Seth Tavo, you covered the National Conservatism Conference for Open Democracy. In fact, you infiltrated it. The website had not been accredited for press, had it? How did you do this? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, we knew that uh, these three news organisations had all been turned away, mm -hmm. um, and I got a note from my editor earlier that morning saying, are you still planning on going? Well, I, I thought it, we weren't, so... I thought I'd just try my chance. Yeah. I rocked up, um, blazer, cufflinks. Uh, Did you Panama have to say hat. the password like, oh, you know, Nazism, not all bad or something like that? Well, the, the password was um, just the story I made up about thinking I wouldn't be in the country and I missed my flight to Marbella, but now I'm here, so I might as well come in if you've got room for a little one. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, because I thought nothing unites national conservatives quite like spending large amounts of time outside the country. And, uh, yeah, it was music to their ears. And they said, come right in, come in just for one session. So you said once inside you saw, uh, and I quote here, no shortage of wackadoodlery. <laughs> what, what were you expecting? What did you actually see in this epochal event? I'm not sure I knew what to expect because they, they haven't had one of these since before the pandemic and it would be you know, a change of culture. But it was basically a Trump rally or an Auburn mm. rally. Um, it felt very much more like an American-style libertarian conservative event 
I've been to loads of Conservative Party conferences over the years. I know that you can have a bit of a weird fringe sometimes, but by and large, these are normal, healthy, mainstream events to some degree or other. This was something else. This was really weird. And what I tended to focus on, because I'd already seen some early coverage focusing on speeches, focusing on what you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Suella Braverman had said, I actually found the delegates more interesting and more alarming. Um, I was much more interested in what really ticks their boxes, what really made them react and mm. uh, pipe up with excitement. So what did make them pipe up with excitement? Mention of guns. Uh, yeah. When the US senator mentioned assault rifles being at an event, that got a spontaneous burst of applause. Um, mention of hormones, anything basically um, stigmatizing trans people. Mm-hmm. Loved it, couldn't get enough of that. There were some weird things on wind farms. I mean, this whole thing about uh, piling up dead birds everywhere. It, it, it was hysterical stuff. I did see the, your quote from J.D. Vansek, I don't want to live in a hellscape covered in dead birds. Yeah. No, he wants to live in the other hellscape. <laughs> no, no, those, those guys are going to build. You also pointed out that they seem to be strangely young. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't in some ways that su- surprised by that, but I know that the perception for these things, especially Conservative Party events over the last few decades, you know, having covered a fair number of these, mm. you expect an older demographic. This is different because it's not actually set up by a UK organisation. It's being run by a US think tank. Um, it's not correct to say that, you know, they've bust in supporters or anything like that, but they've advertised it internationally. It's clearly got an international following, you know, people from Copenhagen and Brussels, as well as from London, lots of Americans, as well as UK students. And it really is sort of 20-somethings, the feel of the place was slightly anemic, socially awkward, you mm. know, shy conservatives who aren't used to being amongst people who agree with them and suddenly being let loose yeah. in this echo chamber. This is because I mentioned, I can remember things like the Federation of Conservative Students, which yeah. would be full of people exactly like that, yeah. who were forever getting caught out by accidentally saying things like, oh, I don't know, Germany mucked up nationalism, for, for example, like Douglas Murray said, said this time. Just to wrap it up, though, I mean, are we, are we making a mistake talking so much about this? Because it didn't seem to be massively oversubscribed from the pictures I saw. I don't know. I think, firstly, a lot of the pictures focused on the front rather mm-hmm. than the back, and actually most people were at the back. There were about 300 people in the hall. It was a respectably attended conference. I think the problem is that five, six years ago, you were seeing things like Trump rallies that were uh, an object of derision and people saying, oh, look at this novelty, look at this bit of fun, or just covering it like it was a normal political event. What I think makes a lot more sense is covering this almost as a sociologist. This is not normal. This is not even healthy. If you look at some of the things being said, which are really far out there, they do need to be covered. They do need to be acknowledged, but um, in the right sort of way, framed as this is not part of our normal healthy discourse. This is a radical departure. Rachel, three years ago, Daniel Kaczynski was reprimanded by the Tories for attending the NatCon conference in Rome. Now we have the likes of Mog Braverman and Michael Gove in attendance. Why did Sunak let them go? Is it just simply, is he fine with it or does he have no power to say no? Oh, I think so. Both of those things are maybe partly true here. Um, so there's like there's a myth that Vishy Sunak is um, a, a one nation conservative and and a moderate within his party. That's like not necessarily the case. I think so. Even by appointing someone like Suella Bravman as Home Secretary, and Number Ten has said that they passed her speech before she got up and said all of all the things she said about immigration, the culture wars, and what have you. He's signalling that he, even by appointing her, he's signalling signaling he's quite right wing when it comes to crime, when it comes to immigration when it comes to cultural culture war issues the line from number 10 at the minute certainly is that he's okay with it to 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 some degree but um you know a lot of it is very much undermining him as well you know Suella Bravman some of the things she said about immigration it was kind of it was like the home secretary standing there and saying this is how I think the home secretary should do her job when it comes to limiting legal migration so I find it hard to believe that number 10 is also just comfortable with that kind of speech. So um, and there's also kind of another theory, which is that given the position the Conservatives in, they probably want to talk to a number of different constituencies within the country. Um, you know, some of them, you know, for example, like Jeremy Hunt might be more at home in Blue Wall constituencies in the home counties or what have you, but they also have other people who were part of their 29 coalition that are more sceptical of immigration, who are um, and not uh, not so socially liberal, and they need to find ways to communicate with them as well. So it may be may be part of um, a pretty desperate electoral strategy. Also, you're very much more polite about those people than uh, <laughs> than I can manage. That was definitely done. Um, 
Michael Gove was probably the least extreme guest. What what was he doing there? Is he have I, have I got him wrong as well? Is he just like far more, uh, you know, extreme than I thought? I think my interpretation of why Michael Gove was there, um, I think he was he was very much there to provide like a counter argument to Suella Braverman's tirade. I think you know. Um, his position was that the Conservatives can't win the elections on on culture wars and they have to win on the economy. He, he said he was himself was a social liberal um, and he kind of didn't want to go into things like criticising the Archbishop for um, his, his position on, you know, saying that the illegal immigration bill was immoral. And I think the way I saw it was like a rebuke to, to Suella Braverman and therefore I think you have to assume that he was there on behalf of Kemi Badenoch, who's the business and trade secretary, you know, he's the person that Michael Gove backed for the last leadership and who you assume that he's still quite keen on taking the job after after Rishi Sunak. And I think that's that's what a lot of this conference has been about. It's been about, you know, people using it as a platform for for the next leadership race, which is just it's it's the kind of conversation that a party would have with itself while it's in opposition, not when it's in government you know it's it's really bizarre i think mentally it, it is in opposition already you wrote a piece for the ns uh, called why swallow braverman is unsackable uh, mm. which is a, a chilling phrase um <laughs> briefly why why is that well i think one, one of the one of the main reasons is just um is, is pretty basic really is that he, he made her home secretary six months ago and if he was to sack her now it would say something about his judgment and not her. Um, I think I, so that, that makes it hard for him in the, in the, in the first instance. I think she also has a base within the Conservative Party, you know, like the ERG, and he needs to keep them very, very sweet. So it's all kind of delicately balanced and he can't, um, can't move against her at this point. That's not to say that a lot of his Conservative Party colleagues, colleagues don't want him to. You know, a lot of people, as I understand it, went to the Whip's office in the last couple of days and have been saying, Look, Rishi, enough is enough. She she has to go. She's undermining you and making you look weak. How long he can kind of keep her in place is is another question, I think. And you have to wonder once you move towards the election and you kind of interpret some of the results from the local elections, you'd have to wonder whether he can continue to afford to have someone as extreme as um, Swella Braverman in post, really. Alex, Melanie Phillips published a piece in The Times with the amazing headline, National Conservatism is not a fascist plot, uh, which, which raises more questions than it answers. Yes. No one really says that when it's not a fascist plot, do they? It's like the, the League of Gentlemen line. Yeah. We, go, we, we didn't, didn't burn, burn him. That's exactly um, right. But um, what, it's easy to use the uh, to the F word here. Um, <laughs> what F word would that be? Well, it's the one that comes after after faith, family, right, right, flag. Right, right, right. The one that probably they don't want to mention. But would would Orbanism be a better comparison uh, for what's going for this kind of rhetoric? I'm I'm keenly aware that you've devoted considerable time and origin story on this subject. So I'm very conscious. No, Matt, um, you, uh, you have a free hit. I'm genuinely not sure. And I don't think that trying to define it is a pressing issue, actually. It is what it is. Um, and I think because it's such an unnatural creature of sort of American imported culture wars trying to impose themselves on the UK public, it may be entirely sui generis. And, and we might waste a hell of a lot of time trying to find a word for it. Um, like to, to give an example, I think you mentioned an origin story that one of the usual elements of that kind of authoritarianism is a sort of titanic figure at the top, this sort of strongman mm. figure that becomes the conduit for, for the force of the state. And if you look at Tea Party in the in, in the United States, for, for about a decade, it was an ideology in search of that leader right, yeah, in yeah. many ways. So that's what worries me. I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing an ideology looking for its Trump um, over here. And, and I find it deeply concerning. I mean, I think Rachel was absolutely right. It involves an implicit admission that the Conservatives are going to lose the next election and lose mm. badly because none of it is about Sunak right now. None of it is about policy right now. All of it is about positioning after a bad loss next election, right? And and that worries me because this is not about what government we get next time. It's about what government we get the time after that. Well, you, you raised this, this point. Um, the sort of Americanisms, there. yeah. And interestingly, in the social media, in the Twitter feed, 
They keep spelling words like centre and humour in American yes, way, which suggests yes. that an American is doing the Twitter really, thing. Really, really old strength. Because it's the work of a US think tank called the Edmund Burke Foundation. You can guess its political leanings. Um, <laughs> has held events around the US and Europe in recent years, like the one that Kaczynski went to in, mm. in Rome. So it's, it's really an international affair. And the, they keep talking about things like critical race theory, religious education, things that sound very like Ron DeSantis. And, and it's called national conservatism. But did you find it weirdly un-British? Completely. Or, and, and very online. Completely. And, and, and what is on top of that is that you've had this almost carpet bombing of think pieces in all the right-wing press from people ranging from the likes of Fraser Nelson complaining about fact-checking and how this is the new um, sort of woke uh, thing that will tie us down to previously sane people like Tom McTagg, who's now decided to become a sort of professional alt-right contrarian, going, why not? What's so strange about national conservatism? And it's like, look at it, man. It is fucking strange. It's, it's, it's absolutely an American import and looks it from a mile off. And the number of people actively trying to make it a thing like actively trying to get the country to wear it is the thing that really frightens me because it's obviously quite organized, quite concerted, and it's got a lot of money behind it. Yeah, the the, the Tom McTague piece, I should say, he's talking about national conservatism, almost like in terms of like Disraeli and that conservatism is interested in yeah, the nation. Yeah, yeah, but that's very different. Because the Conservative Party is swimming with Disraeli. It's very at the different moment. to sort of uppercase N, uppercase C, <laughs> national conservatism, which, which literally this is the first time it's had a UK conference. It's, it's not a UK. It's not British creation. Yeah, it's Fashtonbury. <laughs> um, Matt, uh, I'm going to give you some lowlights. Sure. Yeah, in case you uh, <laughs> have not been glued uh, to your screen. Uh, Miriam Cates, MP, worried about low birth rates and cultural Marxism. Catherine Burble-Singh, reprimanded Whitney Houston for the lyrics of The Greatest Love of All, which Whitney Houston did not write. But anyway, do not let the children lead the way, yeah. she said. She also missed the bit about teach them well. So I don't know if that's a reflection. <laughs> uh, Danny Kruger said that Western civilization is threatened by a new religion, a mix of Marxism, narcissism and paganism, conforming to the dystopian fantasy of John Lennon, which really means imagine rather than I'm the walrus. Yeah. It's also a dystopian fantasy if you're scared of walruses. Um, <laughs> will, will the next leader of the Tory party be a Jordan Peterson podcast? It definitely feels like that. I mean, I, I have found this week quite stressful having to research this because the problem with this conference has been that it's not been live. Like, you can't actually watch it live streamed anywhere. It's all just for the people in the room. Ah, and then yeah. and I look quite hard. I don't think there is any way of watching it live. And so you just get the clips and you just get these mad clips <laughs> of like heart, you know, of like one sentence from this speech where it's deliberately the most provocative weird thing. And then people obviously respond to that going, what is this provocative weird thing? And then you get other people going, oh, you, it's, it, you got that out of context. You didn't see the context. It's like, yeah, because there is no context. You haven't given us the context. And it's just, it's just this most, it's the most um, obvious case of something, uh, a phrase I heard a few weeks ago and made a video about called rage farming, where particularly right-wing conservatives, mm. they put deliberately provocative things up deliberately for people like us on the left and the centre to go, what is this? This is nonsense. And it just increases their reach and engagement. And it's about giving them more attention than they would have otherwise. Done. And they sort of know it. Like the joke that Douglas Murray made about you know the second the Germans mucked up um, yeah. nationalism holocaust what a boo boo yeah exactly and the thing is it's obviously a deliberately stupid sort of provocative joke i i don't really you know nobody really thinks he actually is underplaying it but he's doing it deliberately to make everyone go he's underplaying the holocaust and th and it's this sort of horrible cycle that just they say something stupid and provocative and we go that's stupid and they go ah but you're not listening to the context and we're going but there is no context. It's deliberately provocative. I mean, you've just got to believe that they believe that. They, like, we're not we're not on here. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent would be for us. Yeah. We're not like under... Because it's not like we're a, suit, a communist podcast. Can, so. can I tell the listeners... Well, what would we be saying? Can I tell the listeners to go and watch Matt's latest um, video? Because it was exactly in the Miriam Cates thing. And it made me do a genuine Danny Thomas spit take <laughs> when he called for more conservative babies to fight the Marxists between naps. <laughs> and this is the thing. There's this weird sort of contradiction in, at the moment where... They, they're desperate for more babies, but they hate young people. 
So it's that sort of like we've got we've got to get the babies and then and then at some point stop them becoming young I think, people. Somehow, I think <laughs> I think like in um, for listeners who have seen Guardians of the Galaxy three, there's a there's a kind of tube that you put these little babies into and suddenly they kind of grow into these giant mutations. So I think the idea is that you put the newborn baby in there and then just grows into Tim Stanley yeah. in like seconds and just misses out. The bit where you're uh, a young person who Quite might... Quite a frightening thought. You might, yeah, <laughs> might be into the left. The thing um, I found most bizarre about it, though, is that... And, and in some ways, I think this is probably partly what Alex was saying about they're looking for a leader, is that with almost no exceptions, they are terrible speakers. They just can't do it. They can't present... They're, they're kind of wonkish academics who are obviously not used to being in front of an audience or these kind of mad politicians who just sound swivel-eyed and strange. And then you've got Catherine Burblesing who does this weirdly ranty speech where she sort of starts shouting at the audience, do you love your country enough to tweet under your own name from someone who doesn't tweet under her own name, name which is... You know, yeah, and she called like Miss Snuffy. Miss <laughs> Snuffy. <laughs> I think that's because um, what Matt was saying was right. It's designed for clicks. It's superficial. It's fake. And therefore it feels weird. Um, and I think that it's because it's designed to kind of be spread as far as possible and be controversial as possible. And you feel like a lot of a lot of their hearts maybe probably aren't in it really. They're just kind of trying to trying to make sure they have the best reach possible for some of their ideas. Well, this is what puzzles me, Rachel, because as a nationalist how much is this about you know the future of the Tory party and how much is it is it a form of trolling because they don't like large sections of the British population clearly and it doesn't seem like any kind of political platform for uh, a mainstream party I mean do you think some of them have imagined I'm thinking maybe someone like Lord Frost imagined a silent majority that doesn't actually exist or are they only concerned with a very noisy GB newsish minority? That that's where I get confused because if they're trying to disseminate the weirdest, crankiest stuff, like just attacking pop songs and and Marxist conspiracies, like what what's this for? I can see what it's like for the grift. It's probably great for the careers of some of the pundits, but how does that help the Tories? Well, I think it's it's kind of it's like it's like fantasy politics, isn't it? And it's it's a fantasy because it's ignoring two of the things that matter. Wait, the the two things that matter most to people, which is the cost of living crisis and public services. You know, those things were not part of the, any of the conversations that that I've that I that I've seen so far. You know, there's just no engagement on the central issues for people. So therefore, it is this weird, dislocated kind of movement. But it's also the the analysis of the of the country they're talking about their analysis is is based on you know things that haven't happened yet it's like, it's like they're talking about a conservative party loss that they're responding to and interpreting which hasn't happened yet they haven't had a verdict from voters as to why you know the voters don't want the conservatives anymore they they they're kind of just blaming a load of people and hoping that that blame gets picked up by somebody it's it's bizarre they're kind of disowning a lot of their their own political history as well. Like Miriam Cates, for example, saying, you know, the two two child limit put off people having kids. I mean, yeah, obviously. Um, that was obviously George George Osborne policy. Um and then you had, you know, Danny Kruger, who's he was he blamed Thatcher for hollowing out industry. Um, but then also went on to blame, you know, George Osborne and David Cameron for failing to do anything to reverse it. So it was kind of like a disowning of their of their record and including the record that includes this period in in government, it was. I just found it so hard to fathom of what like the end game is with this. Really, Matt. On the, on that note, uh, Matt Goodwin um, appeared at one point to blame the left um, for Margaret Thatcher and neoliberalism, which uh, I'm old enough to remember was not the case. Um, what do you think? The, what is the left to these people? Because it seems at the same time to be this 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 dogmatic and scary religion slash ideology. I've noticed this happens a lot on the right. You have to wokeism, woke ideology. It's a new faith, etc., etc. None. Of, I don't have been sent any of the rules, so I'm not following it very well. Um, and on the other hand, it's this sort of endlessly morphing bogeyman, which includes Margaret Thatcher. Like so, so they need an enemy. But normally, traditionally, it authoritarians and fascists, they chose an enemy. Like, they, you knew who they were having a go at. Here, I actually have no idea. Wh- who, who are they punching at? Well, I think, I mean, 
every time I see Matthew Goodwin, it always makes me think of Godwin's Law is the idea that any internet conversation will eventually become <laughs> yeah, yeah. about the Nazis. And I always think there's an equivalent, which is Goodwin's Law, which is that anyone I disagree with is a Nazi, essentially. That's his sort of, like, is the elite. And it's also, I think it's also like anyone, I think often Goodwin's Law, in my mind, is we have to think like fascists to stop fascists winning that seems to be his sort of like we have we have to do all you the stuff you made that, me do it yeah we made you like if we if we didn't do all this stuff then the really bad people would do it and you go but you are still doing the same you know you're, that you're still having those thoughts and yeah i think basically it's anyone who disagrees with him i think also um something you said earlier about is it very online there is one tweet that i saw today wednesday from david Frost's speech and it had the word humor in it which is why it struck me and it said apparently there's a quote from his speech is we're accused of not having a sense of humor spelt wrong but if you if you look through the twitter feeds um of the left they are the most humorless people in the country which did feel like a direct attack on me it has to be said i, I think that's who you <laughs> meant um, yeah but that that for me is genuinely that is what that's who the enemy is it's people who are mean to them on twitter that that feels like that's they've got so obsessed with the social media and the culture war that they think that's who is important and it, it's just not it's definitely an older person thing as well people have grown up on twitter so almost have more context mm. but older people that got like very 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 into twitter mm. and that's who their opponent he said our opponents not the left but our opponents yes yeah so it's this constant online and it's just like Log off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lord. It's like just blaming everybody, though, isn't it? It's like the civil service, it's schools, it's, you know, it's it's ultimately like the people of the country. It's progress as well. It's just blaming the future. Like there was a, another guy who said today um, something about, well, I'll find it. Oh, yeah. Um, he said, we should be returning power to the phone book. I thought that's what, what, what does that the mean? Fuck does that also, mean? that's like there what? hasn't been phone books for years. What are you talking about? It's madness. Well, you know. On the future, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's already at the stage of blaming the people because when when um, uh, when Braveman turns around and says, "Why aren't we training people to pick fruit?" and you know, and mm. and people are saying that people shouldn't get benefits unless they go pick fruit. That is the natural extension that the countries in this state, because you're not doing your bit, mm. you're not having babies, you white woman specifically, mm. you're not going out to pick fruit when we need it. You know, so it is entirely becoming that. Well, this is my uh, my my analysis of this, the diagnosis of the error that they've made is because they think it's America, where actually you can using this language speak to a large percentage of the population and they've applied it to a country where it actually speaks to a very small percentage of the population and so it's it's classic unpopulism yeah i, I, I wouldn't underestimate it though Dorian, no, i mean because things, you know if you look at where the small boat crossings issue was as as a priority in people's mm. minds you know two years ago it was fucking nowhere to be seen you know what i mean so I, when I'm you not complacent when you drip 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 that poison into people's ears it does finally you know penetrate eventually through. they will hate yeah. imagine um, Alex, finally, I just wanted to say one one thing that was barely mentioned um, was Brexit. Yeah, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, despite its success, do you think that this basically says that it was that was just like an on ramp for ethno nationalism for these for these people? It that, was that actually they, there's really they've got they can't squeeze any more juice out of that. It was, and, and I said so at the time. I had massive arguments. I wrote a big uh, piece. Uh, specifically sort of talking to the people who were supporting Lexit to say, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Mm. Who is leading this movement? Which, how do you, how do you see it leading the country to a more leftwards direction? It, it was, it was the underpants gnomes. We get mm. the underpants, question mark, profit. <laughs> um, and so they're not mentioning Brexit because it's a palpable failure. Everyone gets it now. The country hates it. You know, its popularity is bottoming out in the polls. Even Nigel Farage yeah, yeah. says it's a shit show. So they don't want to be associated with it. So they retreat to the position, this is bigger than Brexit. It always was. Time 
Time for another listener question in But Your Emails. Keep them coming in, by the way. Uh, this week, Anne Finley says, My appalling namesake, Anne Widdicombe, thinks a cheese sandwich is a luxury that poor people shouldn't waste money on. What does the panel advise lower-income people should put on their sandwiches to save money? Presumably that is not... There is another question behind that question, <laughs> I'm guessing. You're, you're um, looking at me, I think, as the foodie of the group. Is that right? Yeah. I have given this a lot of thought. So you take two cards all of which we hold, <laughs> a couple of slices of sovereign tea, chop up some control, you mix it with 350 million for NHS and apply liberal squeeze of they need us more than they, we need them, and you still have a shit sandwich. <laughs> Very good. Thank Very you. Good. I thank you. Hard to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, what did you make of this let them not eat sandwiches uh, outburst? <laughs> I haven't seen this clip in full, I have to admit. Um, I've only seen some of the quotes that have come out of it from, from Anne Widdicombe. But I mean, again, it's it's one of these things that like you just wonder is just to kind of generate fake debate around whether or not cheese is, cheese is expensive <laughs> or whatever. Um, I, I just found it bizarre, really. And again, just like a pretty like hostile and hateful thing to say i mean who doesn't like a cheese buddy who doesn't like a who doesn't like a cheese toasty and it's say. like there's not many it's not like a kind of truffle sandwich like <laughs> cheese it's quite basic and somebody else there's another tory mp going well, have you tried value beans <laughs> as as if there's people going well i hadn't actually because i'm wedded I'd never yeah, yeah, i'm wedded to heinz and, and, and it keeps wasn't lee anderson a well, this is oh, the thing. Yeah. Like that. It might be a Lee Anderson thing. It might be a, a 30p Lee thing. It's like, what's the, what's, the, what's the worst cheese you could possibly buy for the, the, the least money or whatever? Matt, because the, the whole thing is, it's just like, <laughs> they keep coming out and going, have you tried cheaper food? <laughs> <laughs> as, as, if, as if nobody is, as if this is like a hack. Yeah, it's like <laughs> one, one weird trick. <laughs> Yeah, uh, all right. people are walking around Harrods going, oh, this is too expensive. <laughs> Please, going up with like, like, yeah, like, buy an onion that didn't cost four tins pounds. of yeah. foie gras going, is, is anyone who's good with the economy, yeah. can someone help me? I'm <laughs> my family. Just big waitresses full of nurses yeah. going, I can't afford this. Matt, do you, do you have recommendations? I remember it was a student. I used to eat crisp sandwiches. I was going to say, I loved a crisp sandwich as a, as a student. Although I, I love looking... a what's it sandwich. A what's it sandwich? You... Oh, yeah. Have you not had a what's it sandwich? No, I don't think I ever have. That's really that cheap. is tremendous. But they're... but not what's it's. Yeah. I... It has to be the cheap version the che- of that. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or how's it? Cheese yeah, yeah. yeah, I loved it. Ch- uh, that, that was my... Whenever I'd had like a bad gig when I started doing comedy... Many years ago, I would always come home and have a crisp sandwich. That made me feel better. That's a lot of crisp sandwiches. I had too many crisp sandwiches. I had to stop eventually (laughs) after the first few years. But I was thinking about it, thinking because I actually looked it up, and apparently inflation on crisps has gone up a lot in the Mm. last few years, as it has with lots of things because of potatoes and stuff, uh, as well as shrinkflation because you get less in a bag. Uh, So I was thinking, other option, sawdust. Uh, put a bit of salt on the sawdust it'll taste as crispy as a crisp sandwich and I'm sure wood is a carbohydrate in some way it feels like it should be I just I just found I found there was a I think um, Kay Burley literally put out a tweet going what do you think should people be finding eating cheaper sandwiches I saw that yeah. what do you what think do you think? it's a quite interesting conversation um, I mean even Marie Antoinette had the good fucking grace to suggest an alternative yeah, yeah, yeah. albeit an ill thought one and Whittingham is saying oh, just eat nothing it's just a weird thing just for the aspirational it. Tory party they're going like a cheese sandwich is, is too aspirational yeah. <laughs> know your place <laughs> It's just, um, yeah, I, I found it was wildly offensive. And cheese sandwiches are the, they are the basic, that is what a lot of people have for lunch. You know, that is our, it feels like coming after Kit Kats or English breakfasts. It's, it's an odd choice of thing to go, you shouldn't be allowed that. Because avocado, stick it to avocado. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's an easy, yeah. easy target because they're, they're woke. They're yeah. grown in yeah. woke farms. Exactly. <laughs> One Tory right star who did not appear at the NatCon party was Kemi Banok, away on business. Uh, might have been bad timing anyway, because on the leadership campaign trail, Rishi Sunak promised to take a shredder to the EU regulations still retained in UK law after Brexit in his first 100 days, mm-hmm. that, that glorious period. 
After 205 days, the minister in charge of the shredder announced there would be no great repealing after all. She's promising that 600 laws will be written out of the UK's rule book instead of the 4,000 that were promised. Alex, I was surprised that Brexiters did not say, fair enough, that was absurdly unrealistic goal. Uh, you're obviously on our side um, and they, we shouldn't turn on you uh, just for facing up to reality. They didn't do that. Mm-hmm. In your loyally opinion, ex-loyally opinion, oh, oh, yeah, um, yeah. was that target of 4,000 literally impossible or just extremely disastrous? Like what, given that, that Bernard obviously did not want to climb down on this for political reasons. What was the reality that was facing her? So weirdly, it was both because it was impossible to do in a rational way. It was impossible to actually review all those pieces of legislation and think, what do we put in its place and what are going to be the consequences and what's the impact assessment on this? So that was impossible. Mm. But that idiotic sunset, automatic sunset clause meant it would happen Anyway, so it's like you had marked loads of pieces of legislation for death um, without anything to replace them. In loyally language, we call that a lacuna. Um, and they were proposing to basically create a lacuna, the, the size and depth of the Pacific Ocean, which would pass the cost to private businesses to to kind of frantically try and work out what the fuck is the regulatory framework within which I'm working right now in my sector. Yeah. That's what they were doing. They were going, yeah, you sort it out. So <laughs> we it, don't know. Is there a pragmatic path to to six hundred? Like, has she has? Because that is a it's a serious reduction. Is that a manageable amount by the end of the year? They won't do that. They won't do that. They will concentrate on one or two things. We've already had a little bit of a of a sort of taste that they will just trample worker protections. They will concentrate on working hours directive and there's, stuff like there's that. There's your exit. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yes, yes. Well done. Um, what's the name of that twat from the firefighters union? Um, um, but it, they will basically just copy and paste loads of stuff across and concentrate on one or two big things that they can tout as wins. Um, Rachel, she's clearly in a fight with the Brexit fanatics. But did she consciously pick one? Like, because we always assume that everything is political manoeuvring. But was this just the, 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 a case of her, looking at her brief and going, this is an impossible thing and I'm not going to do it? I think sort of the more interesting question is how she ended up with that bill in particular. It's kind of cross-government responsibilities. You'd think that you'd think that it would have fallen into the lap of the cabinet office minister Oliver Dowden, but it didn't. It, it it was it was it was decided that Kemi Badenoch was going to do it. I mean, I don't know if that's because he refused or if Rishi Sunak thought that she should she should do it. But um, I, I I think you know if you're you know sort of thinking about things from Kemi Badenoch's um, perspective, then I think it probably doesn't hurt her to look like she's facing down Brexiteers some of the time because again it depends what narrative comes out of the election defeat if it's one that's an uh, a vote um you know rejecting some of the the impact of Brexit or whatever then she's going to have to have look like that she's she's she was already starting to deal with that problem and i think one of the ways in which she's kind of trying to sell herself is like some kind of problem solver you know i mean she i think she's she's in switzerland trying to currently soften some of um some of like the post brexit trade and relationships and so that's kind of it seems like she's trying to develop that as her brand like a sort of an independent thinker or a problem solver you know so i think i think there's definitely some political maneuvering in there yeah it's a funny one because you would think that she wanted a, a brief where she could do more of her culture warring which she's very keen on. Do you think it helps but not that she's in a sort of grown-up job where she's not just throwing red meat left right and center? Yeah, there was a rumor around a while ago that she would end up being a home secretary or or have a different kind of job where you know she'd have more of that being able to throw red meat to um, her own party or whatever. But I think um, definitely, because one of the things that she was criticised for during the last leadership race was that she didn't really have any experience. She looked, you know, like it was far too early for her to be running any kind of leadership contest. So this is how she solves it, I guess, isn't it? As business and trade is kind of covers such a massive 
brief and she seems to be given every knotty problem going to kind of help her um, solve, solve some, you know, answer some of that criticism that she had during the first leadership contest that, yeah, I think it's, um, it's not a harm in her, put it that way. And if the Tory right ends up having to choose between Badnock and Breverman as their champion uh, against Our Lady of the Sword, Penny Morden, or some other <laughs> normie in the next leadership race, who would you bet on? Are you, are you pretty confident that one of them uh, would have the edge in that scenario? I mean, it would depend who they, if it was just between them. Um, I, th- I think I think Badenoch would, would probably edge it, but if it's between one of them and you know um, someone from the left of the party, I think um, it's very hard to say how that would turn out. I That's think. what I mean. Though, if the right had to settle on on one, who was going to be theirs against some you know disgraceful pinko moderate? Yeah. Um, I, I think I think I think what what we've seen the last few days with with this conference is kind of like it's, there's a hint of desperation. Isn't there? That, that like they're trying to just um, a hint, a soupçon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. Um, trying to kind of get people to latch onto that idea, like some kind of betrayal narrative, or um, you know, some kind of blame culture where they might lurch for someone like Braverman. But um, I, I, I'd bet on Kemi Badnock at the minute. Matt, do you think that the Badnock? Because I'm thinking of what she said in the in the leadership contest. I'm thinking of her um, cozying up to Ron DeSantis uh, recently. Mm. So I mean, she's clearly very right wing. So is is Braverman kind of a gift to her because it's all about as 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 Rachel said. You know, people do generally think that Rishi Sunak is less right wing than he is because he's always standing next to really right-wing people. And do you think the same sort of thing happens with, with Badnock? The next next to Braverman, anybody looks like a kind of groovy social democrat. I think I think that's probably right. And next to, as you said, next to Liz Truss, she looks vaguely competent. So the, the two are probably working in her favour. And she said something in the House of Commons just before she got told off by the Speaker, um, where she said, well, if I'm if I'm annoying people on both sides of the of the argument, then I'm obviously doing something right. And it's the... I, I do feel like it is beginning to be about positioning, that she is positioning right. herself as slightly more centre than, as you say, Braverman, who's going full-scale, you know, fascist uh, at this, uh, you know, uh, conference. And and Badnock is just edging a little bit towards the centre from a very right-wing position. But I think perhaps she's being quite smart on that. It's probably quite an obvious point, but I was listening to a podcast. Uh, I can't remember which one. It might have been a New States one, actually, where someone just said, like, Braverman's basically just a UKIP MP. Mm. And it was like that was just the that was the way to think of it. And it's like, oh yeah, clearly. Whereas Badnock was probably still, yeah, feels I think like so. she's in the Tory party. But then, but then the question is, a lot of it is about whether it is the job that she's doing, as you say, that is making her be um, re- reality based. Like if you swap those two jobs around, if yeah. Braverman and Badnock had different jobs, which could have happened, would Braverman? I, I, I mean, it's hard to see. I feel like just on instinct and just on having seen them, I feel like Braverman would be still saying the same kind of things as the business secretary and Badnock would be being a little bit less insane uh, in terms of the uh, home secretary brief. But it would be an interesting swap. And I almost feel like Sunak could do that just to see what happened and see uh, he could sort of screw both of them over a bit. Well, I haven't seen... The uh, Lord of the Rings in a while, but but isn't it the ring it corrupts you? And that's yeah. like that, but that's being Home Secretary. Yeah, and I remember people saying, I mean, we had a discussion on here where who was worse, Braverman or Pretty Patel? Mm. And I was like, it's Braverman, but we haven't seen it yet because she hasn't been Home Secretary. Yeah, and that's when <laughs> that's when you see it with Labour people as well, like you know, your inner authoritarian yeah. comes out, and even people you thought were quite reasonable become you know like pretty horrible. Yeah, and the people who were horrible. Are just are just become golem, become yeah. golem, and it's also because like, it's like a character from Lord of the right. Rings, yeah. And it's too, it's just a job that's too hard. There's too many things to do. There's too, the the brief is too big, and therefore they end up focusing on the bit that interests them out of that brief. And for Braverman, it's clearly the immigration bit. But can I just say that out of this, we need to rescue some sanity because we're doing this comparative thing of, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, is Mothra better than <laughs> um, Godzilla? Godzilla. Um, but but the, the truth is that for a party that purports to be competent managers of the economy and the party of business, I mean, this approach 
Badnock may have ended up finally in a vaguely more sane place, but this shit should never have been on mm. the on the uh, roster. It should never have gone to the stage it went. This was a drunk idea in a private members club. You know, let's just scrap them all. Just scrap them all, the laws. Yeah, if this says Europe, just scrap it. I mean, it should never have gone beyond that, right? It's like you've got a table full of dirty dishes and there is a temptation sometimes rather than washing them just like, why have I just knocked them all on the floor? Yeah. Why have I just smashed everything and threw it away and bought new ones? And that it was essentially that in bill form. Yeah, and the dishes are not even dirty in this particular case. <laughs> they just, they're just they from just, France. Yeah, <laughs> well, or they come from your ex, who, yeah. who you hate, but they're actually really great, expensive <laughs> dishes. It reminds me a bit of the situation with Musk and Twitter, that he came in and sacked everybody and destroyed all of the verification and stuff, and then slowly over the next few weeks added... Yes. back on and started end- and then went oh actually we sort of do need that and we sort of do need that and it's like well yeah you you don't have to ruin everything and start again every time you can do things slowly and that used to be what the Tories were famous for was slow incremental um, it's decisions. kind of in the word conservative exactly. isn't it yeah. I, th- I think people maybe focus a little bit too much on on Kevin Badenoch and Suella Braverman as as potential leaders as well because I think after an election defeat everyone's going to want to think about who is going to worry, not not just who's going to satisfy the members and satisfy, you know, the most extreme elements of your own party, but who's actually in some way remotely equipped to take on the Labour Party. And you'd have to look at people like James Cleverley and Penny Mordaunt for, for, for that. I also remember, it's also relevant just like just the scale of the defeat and who's left, you know, which MPs who always have a kind of outsized impact on the leadership race, how, how many of them are really to the right and how many of them um, kind of make a different calculation. Are you being perhaps a little optimistic about <laughs> their sort of the psychology of, of defeat? Because I do wonder with obviously the Tories in um, in 97, well, I don't know, maybe some people thought that Will, William Hague was, was, was better than he was, but they certainly went off for a few years between then and Cameron with sort of unsuitable leaders. Labour after 2015 went with Corbyn, who obviously, you know, outperformed expectations in 2017, but was very much not somebody that people thought was going to take the fight to Cameron so much as something the members liked. So I suppose the, the, the assumption is that the Tories will go, will go harder. Mm. I mean, is that, Am I overstating that that possibility? Do you think there is actually a little more strategy there? Not at all, but I think it depends on, as I say, like the scale of the defeat. If it's really humbling and it's really, really difficult for them, do they then go down a, you know, rabbit hole of blame and um, hostility towards each other and lurch in one doomed direction? Or do they immediately think the mistake that they've they've made to today is not staying close enough to the centre, even while they're in government. So I think, um, yeah, it'll be really interesting to to watch it all unfold, I think. Yeah, I kind of, I mean, from a, I suppose, a labour point of view, you know, I'd be quite happy if they chose um, one of the weirdos. But, but for the future of democracy and <laughs> yeah. so on, um, yes, it'd be great <laughs> if they just went, why not someone normal? We've reached the end of the show. Uh, so what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Uh, Alex? Um, so I wanted to mention uh, Rhys Mogg admitting that the voter AD legislation was an attempt to gerrymander the vote. Just incredible. Um, he wasn't even on a hot mic. I know. Um, <laughs> it was like a normal mic. And I know that it was discussed on, on Tuesday's edition, mm. but I think the bit of it that has gone under the radar is that Rhys Mogg was in cabinet when that legislation was introduced. He wasn't some passive observer. He was actually leader of the House of Commons. He was responsible for driving this business through the House. And he was challenged on this by the opposition quite directly on whether this was an attempt to gerrymander. And he said, and I quote, that it's like being asked not to wear a hat when you go through borders. Um, You know, it's just to avoid personation. 
Um, it, it's a completely ordinary thing. So I think he should be hauled in front of the Standards and Privileges Committee, mm. committee and be made to account for misleading the House of Commons because quite obviously he knew what, <laughs> what this thing was. And just because it backfired, he's now saying, oh, wow, we, we really got that one wrong. But that was we? incredible because that very rarely happens. On, on, on that election day, I was going, well, look, clearly it, it is voter suppression, whether it was meant to be or not, because voters are being suppressed. And I had um, some people on, on Twitter who were critical of that and said, absolute nonsense, blah, blah, blah. Um, Absolute nonsense. What was the blah, blah, blah bit? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Angry. Um, and then and then Mog comes out and goes, yeah, that was yeah. it, but we suppressed the wrong voters. Yeah, we <laughs> fucked it. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's on record, on <coughs> answer. Yeah. At the time, driving that business, going, no, it's all in your mind. I and mean, that is fucking gaslighting. Um, we lost the local elections by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Matt. Um, well, I don't know if you can say that AI is under the radar, but there was a... Um, it controls the radar. Well, quite. Uh, there's, uh, the creator of ChatGBT, um, uh, GPT, I keep calling it GBT, which is very different. Uh, he just keeps telling you that Brexit's great. Um, <laughs> ChatGPT, he was at a Senate um, hearing and he has called for US um, senators to regulate AI and so it's, it's really important that they do this and th- there does seem to be some bipartisan support for this but you feel like it's never in, in a polarised world of America there's no way that it will be done effectively they'll they'll set up some toothless organisation that in a couple of years time will have no funding anymore and it will does, be run by AI will it be run by an AI <laughs> bot exactly and going no no I, I judge myself to be properly correct on this issue exactly and I think the problem is I saw a tweet I tried to find it earlier I couldn't find it again but I've, lots of people have expressed a similar feeling that it does feel like we're, we're, we're getting AI to do like the wrong stuff that you know we're, we're in this place now where people are being asked to work hard in you know manual labour and stuff and, and the robots aren't doing that robots are writing poems and and making art and like artists are being put out of business by AI and musicians and, and we're being asked to go pick fruit exactly <laughs> and it feels like completely the wrong way around if I, I know somebody who works in the TV industry in uh, in the US and they said that it's already the studios are already thinking well give it two or three years we'll be able to basically get AI to write scripts for all of those sort of procedural dramas mm-hmm. because we can, we've had hundreds of episodes of NCIS or whatever and we'll just put those in a box uh, the AI box and then something will feed out, out, out of it and I think it's a genuinely you know we, at the moment it's sort of funny typing into chat GPT and seeing what it comes up with and sometimes it's rubbish but give it a, two or three years it'll start being genuinely scary I won't even use it because it's the devil's work it's horrible um, Rachel what's caught your eye this week yeah there's a, there's a really good story that the Guardian's covered um, about, about a Tory peer called Zamir Chowdhury in relation to no fault eviction section 21 so he's a billionaire Conservative Party landlord um, and he used no fault eviction to throw out a tenant after his tenant refused a £1,600 um, annual rent increase after, after they'd reported mould and damp and what have you and how um, sort of the state the property was in. Um, we've got um, the renters reform bill coming around, um, which is supposed to finally outlaw section 21 no fault evictions. And I just wonder if this is the the start of quite a few stories in in this in this vein because they've they've kind of said they were going to ban it and then have delayed it again and again and again and I just wonder if this will be the first of many kind of scandals as to how renters have been treated. Good stuff, thanks, Rachel. Um, I'm just going to do a very very quick one. I just recommend because I'm unfortunately obsessed with the. Uh, mental disintegration of uh, Elon Musk <laughs> my sense. and there's a remarkable interview uh, I think on CNBC but it's just been going around where he gets asked well, you keep doing all this stuff essentially white nationalist conspiracy theories um, do you not worry that this is hurting Twitter losing Twitter advertising this is going to alienate sort of Tesla and Elon Musk pauses for 11 seconds <laughs> Agonizing, and then very slowly starts describing a scene from The Princess Bride. <laughs> um, where. Uh, that sounds amazing. Where, the, you know, the character, um, Mandy Patinkin's character, wants revenge, and then he's going, you know, offer me money, offer me power, you know, I shall have my revenge. And he's just going, well, I shall have my free speech. 
I will I will disseminate the theories of Cat Turd 2 if I want to, and I don't care about the money, which I just thought is quite an extraordinary business move, but also the way that he was unprepared for the question, that he yeah. does not appear to be able to talk yeah. like a normal person or to have thought through any of the implications of saying that George Soros wants to destroy society. <laughs> uh, and I genuinely thought it's it's so becoming so Kanye-esque, yeah. this sense of like, holy shit, like day by day, you're watching somebody who's, bra- if we're talking about being very online, yep. whose yep. brain has been ruined by being too much on the company that he owns. Because remember Jack? Remember Jack Dorsey? Mm. Twitter CEO? Yeah. He wasn't on Twitter that much. Mm. When he was, he was just like, here's a picture of me, I'm just chilling. He's just, he's forgotten the basic rule, which is don't get high on your own you supply. supply. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And now he is a, the equivalent of a sort of Twitter meth head. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, check that out because the the, the eleven second pause is uh, extraordinary. So thank you very much to Alex Andre, my pleasure, Matt Green, thank you, and Rachel Wearmouth, thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. And don't forget Oh God What Now live at Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 24th of May. Tickets are out now and Patreon people get a discount. Search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. A giant dollop of gratitude from me to Alison McCauley, Susan Schutjes and Francesca. And huge thanks for your support to Sebastian Schmeichek, Brian and Lawrence Woodward. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andre. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production for ATN. We here for you. Welcome to the extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, we are discussing the America Decides episodes of Succession. Spoilers abound, so if you plan to watch it but haven't yet, like Rachel, who has stepped out, please stop listening now. Okay, so this all takes place on election night as Democrat Daniel Jimenez takes on fascistic Republican lizard man Jared Menken. An arson attack on a vote counting station in Milwaukee throws the Wisconsin results into confusion and the Roy family's Fox News-alike news operation ATN must decide whether to call it for Menken, which ultimately means giving him the whole election. The road to fascism is paved with sweaty rich kid infighting. Alex... This episode took me right back to the trauma of election night 2016 and made me question whether I had the psychological fortitude to stay up in November 2024. Did it have that effect on on you? (laughs) It left me genuinely shaken, genuinely feeling quite nauseous. Like you'd seen the real thing, right? Like you'd seen... Like you'd seen how the sausage is made in such a disgusting way that um, it was the the problem with it was that it was a very credible version of what might be going on behind the scenes. And I know you say the 2016 election, but I thought what was very smart about it is that they had also mixed in all the... Bush mm. Junior Florida stuff. Yeah. So it yeah. had kind of merged both the 2016 and some of the stuff that happened in uh, 2021 and some of the stuff that happened with uh, Bush Junior that first well, time I've, when Florida was declared for him. Well, although I forgot what a mess mm. 2000 was. So I looked this up and I was like, oh, who did did they call, you know, did it did it basically go to push because of networks? And networks called Florida for Gore based on exit polls early on. Then they retracted it. Then there's the results came in. They called it for Bush. Then they retracted again and Gore withdrew his concession. Then he went to the Supreme Court, took a month. Obviously, they awarded it to uh, Bush, uh, hence the Iraq war and such like. Um, but yet it was much more complicated then. And it almost like... And the absentee was, votes that yeah. were never counted. I, but, but, I, I, I read Fox a book then. about... I, I read a book by a UN election observer hmm. 
that had a chapter on that 2000 election and 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 he was saying if i had observed this in any central african country i would be crying foul i would be saying this is outrageous um is that the problem matt that one of the things that exposes the poor decision desk guy yeah, who gets uh, who gets wasabi in his eye, um, <laughs> and then uh, lemonade. lemony lemony water. Um, not that lemony, and not that lemony. <laughs> lemony. Then then he gets some, um, but he essentially gets overruled. And and is there, is there sort of something in the um, you know the median norms that you have to call it? You can't just go. Do you know what we don't know? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, just going back to the two thousand election for a second, I was looking into it. Um, today and that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast if you would like to hear us gassing on about succession and indeed a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as three pounds a month you'll also get our exclusive weekly mini cast oh god what else every monday morning and some fabulous merchandise thanks for listening and see you next week 